John chapter 9 from verse 1 to 7. Um, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said to him. Go, he told him. Wash in the, pit, in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I've had uh, lots of conversations with lots of you over the last couple of years just about the state of things in the world, and I've been thinking a lot about what I might say today as it pertains to maybe what God is, is up to in the world, and um, I think it's important to, to say that if we don't know God, if we don't know what God is like, if, if we don't know what God is about, then living in the world as it is becomes a real challenge. Uh, the, the world is challenging enough, but then you confuse it with um, maybe some misunderstandings about God, and, and then, we're in, then we're in real trouble. And some of us experience the challenge uh, in the world to lesser degrees, and others of us feel it more deeply. And I'm thinking about why is that? It's probably based on the level of injustice we are personally exposed to. And so the less injustice that I'm exposed to in the world, yeah, maybe I'm troubled by some things, but not so much as a person who faces injustice, maybe just when they, as soon as they wake up and, uh, and, leave, and leave their home for the day. What you understand, what we understand about God really matters. Some people experience the world as it is, and then because of that, through that lens, they understand that maybe God is cold or distant. We see how the world is, well, that's, that's my then assumption about what God is like. Maybe he's cold. Uh, maybe he's distant. Uh, other people may, might see God as angry or punitive in, in some way. Um, and it's especially, I think, difficult for those of us whose understanding about God has come from being raised in the church. Now, that, that shouldn't be, but please silence all cell phones, but... I'm just kidding. You can just put extra money in the offering today. <laughs> we are confused. Like followers of Jesus, that should be somewhat obvious. In this country, we are confused. And that confusion creates all kinds of problems for us. I think, um, I, I, I think existentially problems arise for us. When we think about God, those of us who have been raised in the church and we see the world the way it is, 
We don't really know how to interact. It, it, but it also causes all kinds of like, practical problems. Well, then how are we to be in the world? And there's really a lot at stake here. It's partly not, this, only, this, this doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings in our church, but it's partly why Sunday mornings are so important as we come to God's word and we hold up an image or a vision of who God is and what he's like. Because if you get your picture of God wrong, you do real damage to your soul. And a person who's living in an unjust and difficult world who's trying to deal with the damage of their own soul, sometimes we inadvertently create other uh, damage for other people in their own souls, and their souls as well. Studies show us that if we understand God to be cold and distant, or we understand God to be angry or punitive, studies show that, that the fear that begins to set in us through our understanding of God over time can begin to shut down our ability for empathy and compassion. So the way we think about God matters. If, we, if we, we have an image of God that causes us to be afraid, then we begin to lose ourselves, and we begin to lose our own ability to, to be loving people in the world. Loving God that we're, a God that we're afraid of forces us to shut down parts of our emotions, and that leaves us with an underdeveloped spirit. And I talk to a lot of people who have been raised in the church, and I think even they would maybe describe them, themselves in that way. That there's just some parts of them that are underdeveloped because of their time in church. And again, this matters because what we believe about God, rightly or wrongly, shapes the kind of people we become. And so, what is it that I'm supposed to believe about God? What is it that I'm supposed to believe about who God is or, or what God is like? Well, I want you to listen to the simple words of Jesus here in the Gospel of John. Now, Brian just read our teaching text, which I'm going to walk through that story in just a minute, but this is from John chapter 12, verse 45. Jesus says this, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Now, do you want to know the real meaning in the original language of this? It's this, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. That's the hidden meaning. There's no hidden meaning. Jesus is saying, if you want to understand what God is like, if you want to understand who God is or what God thinks about all of this, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you don't have to guess. Look at me. Because when you look at me, you are seeing the one who sent me. So when we're confused about God, and I think many of us have some confusion about God and what's going on in the world, so when we're confused about God and we're struggling to live in a world of injustice, it's Jesus that helps us see God more clearly. So I want to offer something that seems very, very basic, but we can never leave as a church. The greater our confusion about the world, the more intently we must look at Jesus. So if you come in this morning with any level of tension, frustration, misunderstanding, confusion, about the world, wherever you're at in that frustration, you must commit yourself to looking at Jesus. Most of us don't do that. Most of us will look at the problem that's causing us our issues. We'll try to figure out the solution or the cause. Why are things the way that they are? Believing that the answer is in unraveling the way that the world is, and yet that's not what Jesus says. 
Jesus says, if you want to know God, don't look at the world and try to guess. Look at me. I will show you. In fact, in many circumstances, Jesus says, I will tell you what God is like. We cannot leave the centrality of Jesus as a church. As we set off to do justice and mercy and compassion, we cannot leave Jesus. So the answer is not about our church, the answer is not about a religion, but when it comes to being fearful or hopeless, the less we understand the world, the more serious we must become about Jesus. So understand that as great as our singing is, without Jesus, all of our singing, all of the praying that happens before the service and after the service and in our small groups, all of the studying of scripture all of our doing justice is not only pointless, but without Jesus, it's actually a problem because Jesus is the one who shows us what God is really like, and it's really easy to get away from Jesus. So when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. See, all kinds of weird things get into our theology and mission when we fail to put Jesus at the center, and many of us grew up in churches that maybe forgot or got lost along the way and failed to put Jesus at the center of it all. And when we fail to do that, we end up doing all kinds of damage to ourselves, to one another, and to the cause of Christ in the world. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus, all of that, all of the mess that we see going on in the church and outside the church, all of that gets redeemed. And we, as followers of Jesus, become more like Jesus. In an unjust world, we become more loving, more compassionate people when we focus on Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is really like. So here, John chapter 9 is my favorite passage of Scripture to preach. I don't know why that is. It's always been the case. And I've preached this passage numerous times. Um, I don't know if I've ever preached it, preached it here. I probably have at some point in the last almost nine years. But, um, but I'm excited to preach it today. This is a fresh sermon. This is a different sermon than what I preached before. But there's so much in this story for us As a church today, there's so much in here about seeing what God is like in the face of an an unjust world. So I want to invite you to turn to our teaching text if you haven't done so already. You know, you can use our church app. um, If you download that from whatever your app store or whatever that other thing is on Google, um, you can get our app and there's a, a Bible built into the app that you can follow along or you can just Google it or do whatever you want. Uh, John chapter nine, verses one through seven. This is a story in which Jesus shows us what, what God is like when the world is not as it should be. And I think we can all agree this morning, the world is not as it should be. The world we live in is not as it should be. So what do we learn about God through this story? Well, let me give you a little context first for what's happening before we get into the story itself. This story unfolds during a festival called Sukkot. Does anybody know what that festival is, Sukkot? Can you just raise, I'm not going to ask you to come up here and talk about it. Just raise your hand. I'm not going to test your knowledge. But do you really know what it is, Jonathan? Yeah, Sukkot is also the festival of, of, of tabernacles. It's, and it happens here in the city, which is really cool. You can watch as uh, the Jewish people celebrate this festival still to this day. Um, the, 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 it's a joyful festival. It's not a solemn one. It's a, it's a time of joy. And it commemorates the sheltering of God's people in the wilderness. And so during Sukkot, during Tabernacle, the festival of Tabernacle here, 
Um, to this day, people will build little shelters outside their apartments, outside their homes, and they'll stay in those shelters. And so if you back up a chapter or two, uh, John uh, 7 and 8, you'll see that throughout this seven-day festival, Jesus is present while the festival is going on. And the festival centers around the temple. And so we find Jesus during Sukkot, we find him at the festival, at the temple, and while things are going on in certain parts of the temple, we find Jesus teaching in other parts of the temple. And I imagine there are parts of the festival that Jesus himself participated in as a, as a Jewish man and rabbi. But that's where Jesus is, and that's what's happening at the time. Now, while Jesus is teaching, he's saying some very interesting things. Uh, to some, people began to think during this week that maybe Jesus was a prophet. As people began to hear the things that Jesus said, they began to say, surely this man is a prophet like, like Elijah. Maybe he is Elijah, come back from the dead. There's something about his teaching. Other people were so moved by his teaching, they took it a step further and thought, maybe this is actually the Messiah. Of course, they were dead on. That is who Jesus is and was, is the Messiah. And then there were other people, most of them religious leaders, who had power or people close to power, funny how that works, that wanted to stone Jesus because Jesus was like messing up their thing. And so you have people that are sort of responding to Jesus in all these ways, but you don't really find people that are just sort of floating around neutral. Like, oh, you can go to this part of the festival, oh, I heard this guy Jesus was teaching, oh yeah, I heard that, it was okay. You know, none of that was happening. It was either, let's follow him and die for him, and others are like, let's pick up our stones and kill him. And it, there was very little in between. And throughout the festival, this is an important sort of piece of our story today, but there's a part of the, the festival of Sukkot which is really, really beautiful. It's really powerful. It was a libation ceremony. And so each of the, during each of the seven days of Sukkot, the priest would take an empty bowl from the temple and leave the temple and walk all the way to the Pool of Siloam. And he would dip the bowl in the Pool of Siloam and carry the water all the way back to the temple where, the, where the, um, he would then pour the temple out over a, lar a, a large stone altar while the people cheered and they danced and they sang in, in joyful celebration of, of, God's, of God's provision. It was a celebration both of what God had done for them, but it was also pointing to the day when it was promised that God would pour out his blessing again on the people. It was a way of looking back and a way of looking forward, and the people rejoiced, the people celebrated. On the last day of the festival, the priest would make the journey from the temple to the Pool of Siloam and back to the temple seven times, each time pouring it out, each time celebrating, joyful singing, and dancing. And now while the, while the water ritual is taking place in that part of the temple, we have record of Jesus in another part of the temple saying things like this. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So all throughout the festival, as the people of God are celebrating the symbols of God's faithfulness to them, Jesus is interpreting those symbols and embodying them, saying, I am the true water. 
I am the living water. You see what's happening over here? Good. That's about me. I am the one through whom God is pouring out his blessing today on the earth. Jesus is fulfilling the festival before their very eyes. Some people see it. Some people don't. They can't receive it. Okay, that's the backdrop. That's the context. And also knowing the religious leaders wanted to stone him, Jesus does, and we saw him do this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus does what any smart person would do, he leaves, okay? Anyone wants to stone you, get out of there, all right? That's what Jesus does. That's for future. If something happens this week, just leave the place where people want to stone you. Go to a different place. Jesus does. He leaves the temple, and then we pick up the story here in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Okay? Each part of this is interesting. As he went along. Where does Jesus encounter this man? Jesus encounters this man, not in the center of everything that's happening, but Jesus encounters the man outside of the temple. Why is that? Why is the blind man not inside the temple? The blind man would not have been allowed inside the temple. That's why he's not there celebrating. Because no abnormality was allowed to enter the temple. So in the religious system, purity was used as a sign or a symbol of God's righteousness. So anything that was impure could not enter the temple. And any abnormality was seen as impure and therefore uh, potentially a sign of sin and unrighteousness. And so if, uh, if a sacrifice uh, was brought to the temple, a, a lamb or something like that was brought, and the lamb had some sort of blemish. Well, that, that lamb could not be accepted, and so the priests would turn the, the, the worshipers around, and they had to go find a lamb without abnormality. Why? Because you can't bring something impure into the temple because purity represents God's righteousness. If you were a priest, or if you wanted to serve as a priest, and you had some sort of visible um, abnormality. You couldn't serve as a priest. They were sort of like the fighter pilots of their day, I guess. I don't know. You're colorblind, you can't see, or you can't do this, or you have a limp, or you have this problem, or whatever, or you're, you know, uh, just male pattern baldness, whatever. I don't know what it was all included in that, but it was like, if it's not perfect, you can't, you can't come in. There's a sign of abnormality. Not even worshipers could enter the temple if they had abnormalities as is the case here with this man. They weren't allowed in the temple if there was any visible sign that might suggest that they were being punished by God because of their sin. Because purity, again, is a sign of God's righteousness in the religious system. But look at who God is. Remember, when we look, Jesus says, when you look at me, you are seeing the one who sent me. So look at God. Who in Jesus seeks out people where religion is not willing or able to go? That's where Jesus finds this man. That's where Jesus goes. So if you're looking for Jesus, where do you look for him? If you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him guaranteed with people who are in the margins, not at the center, not at the top but those people who are in the margins of society, which is exactly, again, where Jesus finds the blind man. As he went along, he saw a man. Jesus moves outside of the center of religious practice and community, and he finds this man. And he doesn't just find a man, he sees the man, because Jesus never looks past anybody. 
Jesus comes across this man and he sees him. There's something to this. Jesus always sees the people who are overlooked. That's verse one. Verse two, his disciples asked him, now listen to their question given the context that I've just given you. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? So before we get all upset about sort of the hypocrisy or the craziness of the disciples or whatever, it's important again to recognize the disciples are just sort of echoing, echoing or, or sort of like regurgitating what was, um, what was normal within the religious system. But when the disciples of Jesus, they're faced with a perfect opportunity to help somebody, instead what they want to do is turn this into an opportunity for a theological discussion. As a pastor, I've had lots of conversations with people who would rather have a theological discussion than actually engage in the work that Jesus has for them to do. And I think most of those people that I've had conversations with leave disappointed because I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I love Jesus. I love the church. I feel called to be a pastor and to help people experience what God has for them in the context and through the expression of the local church. That's me. But I'm not a theologian. My, my question at the end of the day is, knowing that the most important part of a Bible study is when we close our Bibles after the study, and decide what to do with it. That's my biggest concern as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor. And these guys, like so many of us, would rather, in the comfort of our belief system, so that we don't really have to lift a finger, we'd rather have a discussion about theology. And again, in light of their worldview, the question makes sense. There's a reason why they find this man outside the temple, and the disciples believe that even before this man was born, he could have sinned. Did you pick up on that? This man was born blind. And the disciples want to know, was it him who sinned to cause him to be born blind? Or was it his parents? So I want you to think about that. The disciples think this guy must have like stolen something in utero. This guy, must, he must have really had a foul mouth. I, I don't know what sort of sin besides sucking the life force of its mother dry, an infant in utero could actually commit. But they believe that. Uh, and it's not, hurt, not unheard of. I mean, think about the story of Jacob and Esau, the fraternal twins that are born. And it was as if they were wrestling, fighting each other inside their mother's belly. And when the twins were born, Esau first... You remember Jacob came out grasping the heel of his twin brother? Maybe there was some sinning, some fighting going on in there. But if you couldn't sort of believe that maybe a baby committed an, uh, um, a sin to be punished for before the baby was even born, then you could blame the parents. There's the provision. Maybe he didn't. Maybe that's a little too far or whatever. Maybe he didn't do anything. Maybe it was his parents. Was it his parents that sinned so that he would be born blind. The man born blind is an injustice that has to be explained. And the disciples are looking for the explanation. This is an injustice. What has caused it? 
What's caused this man to be born blind? And one way to explain it is to say that God did it as a just form of punishment for sin. Because for the disciples, how else would you explain it? How else would this happen if God wasn't punishing this man? There are two ways to look at the world. The first is this. The world is fair, and people suffer because they deserve it. If not because of the wrongs that they've committed in this life, then maybe because of the wrongs they've committed in a previous one. That's the definition of karma. Karma sees the world as just, fair. And if any of us suffer injustice, we have the blame. Someone has to be blamed for it. That's one way of looking at the world. Or we could look at the world differently. We could look at the world that we live in as unfair. One way is to say it's fair and the injustice is your fault. The other way is to say the world itself is unfair. And sometimes bad things happen to good people. And sometimes and lots of times good things happen to bad people. They get the role. They get the promotion, right? They, they get the dream, whatever it is for us. We see people thriving, and we wonder, why them and not me? I'm like a good person. They're kind of a jerk, whatever. Like we, that, that, that is how our world works. Of course there's sin in the world, but oftentimes these sinful people thrive. The question is, how does Jesus see the world? Does he see the world as fair, or does he see the world as unfair? Jesus says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. So before we jump to the theological argument of sin, Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you, this isn't about what he has done or his parents have done. Neither one of them have sinned. Jesus holds the view that the world is not fair. Jesus holds the view that we live in a world in which people get what they, not a world in which people get what they deserve, but we live in an unfair world in which we stop when we see someone hurting or we see someone in the margins and we take the opportunity to help. And Jesus looks at our world today, does he see a fair world or an unfair world? Jesus sees an unfair world, which is why Jesus has come to make things right to make things whole again. Can I explain the unfair injustice of the world that we live in as your pastor? No, not really. I don't have any really great arguments or reasons for it. But I love how Jesus turns the conversation away from a theological discussion to an opportunity to help. And that's what I know that we have. Maybe we can't explain why the world is unfair the way it is, but what we can do is engage. And that's what Jesus brings the disciples into, is engage with the opportunity to help. Uh, verse three, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a tricky sentence, and we're gonna come back to that in a second. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So I want to make a couple, couple of notes. I want to give you a couple of notes here. First of all, all translations, 
are interpretations. So every time an original manuscript of the scriptures was translated, the translators often have to make decisions called interpretations about what's really being said in the text. You know how language works. Language, you can't just connect the dots to language and everything makes sense. And so the interpreters are gifted, skilled scholars, and they're very good at it, and so that the Bibles we have are so accurate and so close to the original manuscripts. But just remember, all translations are in interpretations. Uh, some words uh, have been inserted in our English translations that are not there in the original language in this verse, is, is a good example of this happening. In other words, in, in the manuscripts that we have, which are close to originals but not originals, the manuscripts that we have, the Greek New Testament, we have this story. But in the Greek, the ancient biblical Greek, the words, this happened, do not exist. Okay? Those words were inserted by interpreters to help make sense of what's happening here in the story so that we could read it in our native languages and have an understanding of what's happening without having to have some sort of like deep understanding of, of ancient biblical languages. The words this happened don't exist in the original text. The second note I want to make is this, is that Greek has no punctuation. Ancient biblical Greek has no punctuation. So the Gospel of John in the Greek is one giant run-on sentence. So interpreters not only have to do their best, and they're very good at it, in bringing original languages into modern languages, but they also have to decide where one sentence ends and one sentence begins. And if you're an English major, a communications major, you know that where the period goes affects the meaning in a great way. So, the translators have decided where the break is. And so, I, I want to introduce, just with the original language, I want to introduce to you another way that this could be read, and it makes all the difference. Another way this could be read, I have it on the screen, I think, here. In the original, when we remove that phrase and put the words in the right order, then we would read it this way, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Do you, is, does that sound different to you than the original? Like, is this, I like thought about this a long time this week. Is it making sense right now to you? Okay, I'm gonna read the original again. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, uh, this is the English again, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. What does that communicate? That communicates God's behind it. God has caused this person to be blind for his glory. Now, many of us have no problem with that statement because we've been raised in churches that have um, preached that same sort of truth. And these are brothers and sisters in Christ, scholars and godly people who love Jesus and all that. So this isn't like sort of judgment and who's right and who's wrong. It's not about that at all. But what I'm saying is that means something very different than what I'm seeing in the original language. That this man was born blind. Let's recognize that. Yeah, that's true. 
but so that the works of God might be displayed in his life, let's do the thing that God has called us to do. You can choose which one to sort of go with. For the rest of the sermon, I'm going with the second one. And so you can come along with me if you want. I think it matters. I think it makes a difference. Because I don't think Jesus is giving a reason as to why this man was born blind, which is what the disciples are asking for. But rather, he's calling his disciples to seize every opportunity to do good in an unjust world so that the power of God might be seen in it. That's what I think Jesus is saying. Notice this, as long as it is day, who must do the works of him who sent me? We. Jesus says, as long as it is still day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Not just Jesus saying, as long as it's still day, I must do the works. But we, Jesus is bringing his disciples in, reminding me of John 20, 21 and other places, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. We are brought in as followers of Jesus to the mission of Jesus, the just mission of God in the world. The Father, what's he do? He sends the Son to bear the light of God in an unjust world where bad things happen to good people. And the Son sends you and sends me to do the same. So we can choose to look at it backwards like the disciples did. Whenever we encounter injustice to say, who's caused this problem? Where has this problem come from? What's the issue here? What's going on? Can we explain this theologically and understand God in some way? Or, and ask who sinned, or we can look forward at the injustice of the world like Jesus, which is to say, it's unjust, what now? What happens next? And what is our role? How is it that we can be a part of what happens next? After saying this, verse 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. If, if you're not disgusted by that, you've just read the Bible too much or something, this is gross. This is not, you know, be healed. This is something else altogether. I mean, I'm going to spare you the reenactment, but I want you to just imagine. I thought about doing that, like bringing up some mud and like spitting in it. Believe it or not, you probably believe it. I have done that in the past. And I ran out of saliva so quickly, it's not even funny. And here's Jesus. He's just like a saliva machine. He's just like... Pouring it out, it's like holy, holy saliva coming from the mouth of Jesus. An endless eternal supply of, of heavenly spit. And he's, he's, he's bending down, like Jesus has to bend over, he's spitting in the dirt, his disciples are looking around. Definitely, outside the temple, definitely other people around. And you know like the person you're with when they embarrass you and you kind of don't want to be seen with them? I imagine that's what the disciples are like, oh my gosh, like... I'm going to go find some bread or something. But they, hear, they, they, they stick it out. Jesus is spitting. He's making mud with the saliva. It's not a pretty sight. And it's not dignified, but it's what Jesus does. It's dirty, and it's maybe even a little bit disturbing to us. And then after making mud with the, the dirt and, and his saliva, Jesus stands up and does the grossest thing, which is smears it all over the man's eyes. Why does Jesus do it that way? We don't know. We don't know. This is a choice that Jesus made, and however gross it might be, 
Jesus maybe is engaging the senses, the other senses of the blind man. See, everybody else around has the vantage point and the ability to see what Jesus is doing. The only person who doesn't is the blind man. Maybe it's for the blind man's sake. I'm sure that, like, the blind man would be like, it's okay, Jesus, just you can do it another way. I don't mind. Maybe it's for the blind man's sake. Maybe Jesus is wanting to give some sort of vis- visible representation of the gross nature of injustice. When we, I don't know what Jesus is. No one really knows why he did it, but he chooses to do it this way. And even after all of that, the guy still isn't healed. Jesus says, verse 7, Go, he told him. Wash where? In the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Jesus tells the man who now is caked in mud, made from the dirt of the ground and the spit of the Messiah. And Jesus tells him to go wash his mud off into their pool. The religious system. The same pool where the procession is happening. Jesus instructs the man to parade himself to the center of their religious ceremony, and then he will be healed. What I, I, what I want you to see this morning is Jesus doesn't just operate outside of uh, religious practice and ceremony. Jesus isn't just doing that. Jesus is actually confronting it. Jesus is actually confronting a religion where marginalized people suffer the effects of an unjust world. And the religious system does nothing about it. Jesus does it outside the temple for a man born blind when he heals him. And he does it also inside the temple at a different date for the poor. Remember when he knocked over the tables of the money changers? Jesus is always disrupting whatever religious system or practice we're a part of that doesn't have Jesus at the center and doesn't reach and love and serve the poor, the marginalized, the sick, the broken. Jesus is making a, a, a point that religion doesn't, that doesn't include him or see him at the center of it all, it must be confronted. And the way that we confront a religious sort of cultural Christianity in our community, in our city, is by doing the stuff that's in front of us, taking the opportunities to do the works of the one who sent Christ. Jesus is showing us what God is really like. Jesus doesn't live in a just world where people always get what they deserve. Jesus lives in an unjust world where injustice of all kinds must be confronted. And listen, religion can't do that. Only Jesus can. Religion can create rules and boundaries, and in some ways religion can be very helpful, but religion can't heal a man born blind. Only Jesus can do that, the one sent from the Father and those who follow him. We must do the works. Some of you in this room have a gift 
of healing, and you might not even know it. Some of you know that you have the gift of healing because you've prayed for people before, and maybe even to your surprise, at the end of the prayer, they said, oh my gosh, that pain is gone. There are people in this world, in this room, who have the gift of healing. If that's you, lay your hands on people and pray for them after asking them if you can lay your hands on them. Lay your hands on them and pray for them. Do the works of the one who sent Jesus. But all of us in this room have gifts. We have ways of participating in the thing that God is doing. The joy of the Christian fellowship is helping one another see the gifts that are in us that we can't always see for ourselves, calling those gifts out, um, affirming those gifts in people, empowering and releasing each person in this community to participate in the kingdom in the way that God has gifted them to do so. It's all about Jesus. And when it's for us, and when for us it becomes all about Jesus, two things happen. One, we see God for who God really is. And that's a comfort. We see that God is not cold and distant. That God is not angry and punitive. Because when we've looked at Jesus this morning, we've seen that God is loving and compassionate not bound by religion, but operating in the margins to bring about justice and righteousness for the whole world. That's the first thing that happens, is we see God for who He is. And the second thing that happens is that we become more compassionate and loving people ourselves. So when we begin to see Jesus... We begin to understand who God is, and then we are beginning to be transformed in the process to actually become like Jesus. Jesus doesn't only want us to do the things that he does. He wants us to be who he is, to be transformed by the work of the Spirit in us into compassionate, loving, engaged followers of Jesus in the world. And understanding and believing in a God who pours out himself in love for us, it makes us people who are able to do the same for others. So, in conclusion, here's the thing. Let's talk about application real quickly. Let's put this next slide up. The question I want you to ask yourself is this week, I don't mean in general or over the course of your whole life, and if this week is too long, then like today, Start with today, how will I learn Christ? And by learn Christ, what do I mean? I mean by deepening our understanding of who Jesus is, what he said, what he did, so that we might see God for who God really is. How will you learn Christ this week? Let me give you a suggestion, okay? This is just one. There are lots of ways to do this. My suggestion is this. Every morning this week, you can put the little, next little uh, slide up there. Thank you. Every morning this next week, commit to reading a portion of John's gospel and see Jesus in the text. Watch what Jesus does. Read what's read or said about Jesus and written about Jesus. Listen to the things that Jesus says. Learn Christ. Become familiar with, again for some of us Become familiar with Jesus again. And then once you've read, ask the Holy Spirit to do a couple of things for you. One, 
Ask the Holy Spirit this. What do I learn about God when I look at Jesus? So read a few verses. What do I learn about God in Jesus in these verses? What is it that, I'm, that God is revealing to me about who he is through Jesus? And then the second question, what does this demand of me? Now that I've learned this about God by looking at Jesus, what does this call me to? What changes do I need to make? Um, what truth do I need to believe? What person do I need to embrace? What is it for you? Holy Spirit, come. This is what we're asking the Holy Spirit to do and reveal what do I learn about God and what does this demand of me? Now let's turn to God now with the rest of the time that we have this morning. Let's turn to God and ask the Spirit to do the work in us that's necessary for us to do the works of the one who sent Jesus. Meaning, in order for us to engage in that Jesus thing, do what Jesus does, we need the Holy Spirit to work some stuff out in us. That's why we've come this morning. And so we come over the next few minutes confessing Jesus by taking these elements, by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus, who shows us that God is a loving, compassionate God who has given his own life sacrificially for us. And before we can go do the same, we need to receive the body, the life of Jesus. And so we come receiving the life of Jesus in communion, worshiping and praying. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Some of you may have some prayers or some concerns. And we want to invite you to come to the back of the auditorium where our prayer counselors will be. We'd love to just pray for you during worship while all this is going on. Come back and let us pray for you. Others of you might just, it's too, you can't, we want to encourage you to share it with somebody, but it's just too much. Then come this morning and just write out your prayer need or concern or maybe a letter to God and just roll it up and put it in our, add it to our prayer wall this morning. That's just an act of response to what God is doing. I pray that you'll see Jesus for who he is, the son of God, who restores and redeems us, brings us back into relationship with the Father, and makes all things new. Let's confess him as Lord today and receive him as Savior. Would you stand as we respond this morning? Jesus, we love you. We respond today to you. Give us what we need in the person of Jesus. Amen.